you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 4. Book of Nehemiah, chapter 4. This will be a continuation uh, from a previous sermon that I did a couple of weeks ago, where we looked at the rebuilding of the walls around Jerusalem after the captivity in Babylon. Nehemiah chapter 4, we'll read from verse 7 to 23 this morning. Okay, let's read. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 7. But it came to pass that when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabians and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were made up, that the breaches began to be stopped, then they were very wroth, and conspired all of them together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to hinder it. Nevertheless, we made our prayer unto God, our God, and set a watch against them day and night because of them. And Judah said, The strength of the bearers of burdens is decayed, and there is much rubbish, so that we are not able to build the wall. And our adversary said, they shall not know, neither see, till we come in the midst among them and slay them and cause the work to cease. And it came to pass that when the Jews which dwelt by them came, they said unto us ten times, From all places whence ye shall return unto us, they will be upon you. Therefore said I, in the lower places behind the wall and on the higher places, I even set the people after their families with their swords, their spears and their bows. And I looked and rose up. And said unto the nobles, and to the rulers, and to the rest of the people, Be not ye afraid of them. Remember the Lord, which is great and terrible, and fight for your brethren, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your houses. And it came to pass, when our enemies heard that it was known unto us, and God had brought their counsel to naught, that we returned, all of us, to the wall, every one unto his work. And it came to pass, from that time forth, that the half of my servants wrought in the work, and the other half of them held both the spears and shields and bows and the habijons, and the rulers were behind all the house of Judah. They which built it on the wall, and they that bear burdens, with those that laid it, every one with one of his hands wrought in the work, and with the other hand held the weapon. For the builders, every one had his sword girded by his side and so builded, and he that sounded the trumpet was by me. And I said unto the nobles and to the rulers and to the rest of the people, The work is great and large, and we are separated upon the wall one far from another. In what place, therefore, ye hear the sound of the trumpet, resort ye thither unto us. Our God shall fight for us. So we laboured in the work, and half of them held the spears from the rising of the morning till the stars appeared. Likewise, at the same time, said I unto the people, Let every one with his servant lodge within Jerusalem, that in the night they may be a guard to us and labour on the day. So neither I, nor my brethren, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard which followed me, none of us put off our clothes, saving that every one put them off for washing. Let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer first before we get into this, uh, this message this morning. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for this opportunity that we can come together in this way and to learn from it. I pray this morning that as, our, uh, as we are here and we, we are in here, era, uh, ear uh, shot of, uh, of this message, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be ready to receive that message, that your spirit will be working on our hearts even now, 
that we might take something in, that it might uh, be a seed planted there, and it might grow and bear, uh, bear fruit for your glory and for your honour. We thank you once again for your word, which you preserved for us in, in the most incredible way. And we pray that, uh, once again, that your knowledge will become our knowledge, that we might glorify you in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. That was a, a fairly long piece of scripture I just read. And some of it might seem a little bit strange to you with the way it's described. But basically what was happening here is that the, the Jews who had been taken away captive to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar, what had happened was previously Jerusalem had been thoroughly destroyed. The walls had been broken down. They had laid siege to the city and, and they destroyed the whole place. Actually, they laid siege to it for about a year and a half before the walls came down, before they broke through. And they'd taken most of the population away to Babylon captives and this particular time Nehemiah was working with his people he'd been given permission by the king of Persia to go back and to help rebuild those walls and hence rebuild the city and the work wasn't progressing well that's why Nehemiah decided to to go back and ask special permission from his king saying, can I please go back? He was actually a servant to King Artaxerxes. And the king said to him, go back and go uh, help your people to rebuild this wall. Walls were a very important part in the ancient world. Most of us have heard of the Great Wall of China, haven't we? And most of you can probably teach me a thing or two about the Great Wall of China. But basically, the, the Great Wall of China was built, I think, through the Ming Dynasty. It, it covers about, I think, about 8,000 kilometres. It was roughly about 8 metres high. By all accounts, it probably cost the lives of about a million people to build that wall. And it's probably the, uh, one of the only man-made structures that can be seen from space as well. It was built primarily to keep certain people out. It was built basically to keep the, the, the Mongols out, the warring uh, uh, nations out of China. And the amazing thing about it is when it was breached, and it was breached, they did break through. They didn't go over it. They didn't go around it. They bribed the gatekeeper. The gatekeeper was bribed and he let them through. So with all the effort, with all those lives that were, that were, uh, that would, were required to build that wall, one of the, the, the most terrible times was when uh, the guard who was posted at a particular uh, place and they had guards and they had watchtowers at particular points along this thing, decided to let a whole army through. And that caused massive destruction. When the Romans decided to invade England, they got to a certain point and they said, this is all too hard. So Hadrian, the emperor, decided to build a wall that split England from top or Britain from top and bottom. And that was not because they wanted to, to grow more. That was because to keep these, uh, these people from the north of England, you know, the Scottish people and all those 
really wild and, and uh, to keep them out. What was the importance of a wall? Well, walls were very important, especially in the ancient world. Most cities in the old, in the old world were walled cities and Jerusalem was one of those cities that was walled. And why would you need a wall around a city? Well, basically it was to keep people out because there were a lot of uh, smaller nations who, who constantly fought against one another. And if you didn't have a wall around your city, guess what would happen to you while you were sleeping at night in your bed? Well, they would come invariably at night and, they, and they'd run through the town. But with a wall, you had a good chance to defend yourself. Actually, when we look at Jerusalem, Jerusalem was able to defend itself for a year and a half against the Babylonian army. Now, that's like... Australia defending itself against the might of America or Melbourne holding off the might of the American army for a year and a half. And that's what they did. Walls were very important for any city in those days. If, if you didn't have a wall around your city, the city was basically defenceless and any army could sweep through your town and destroy it. A wall offered enough protection to deter even strong armies from wanting to take your city. Now, what does that have to do with us? Well, the Bible speaks of walls in our lives from a spiritual point of view. You see, the stories that are told in the Old Testament and the New have a spiritual relevance to them. God doesn't write down history for nothing at all. But the things that are written in the Old Testament, especially and everything that happened to the Jews happened as a result of a spiritual battle that was going on as well as a physical battle. And those spiritual battles that were going on actually are a wonderful lesson for us today. And we learn about the defence of the walls and how important walls are in our lives. You see, because walls have gates and gates allow certain things in and keep certain things out. And when you're a Christian... When you're a person who professes Christ and has, and has claimed the name of Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, the Bible says that there are certain things that you should allow into your life, that things, things such as the Word of God, things such as truth and love and grace and peace and all those things that God says are good things, but there are certain things the Bible says you need to keep out. Now the question for us, and this is the question I raised two weeks ago, was what is the state of our walls? What are the state of the walls around our hearts. Are those walls in disrepair? In other words, if the enemy, if the devil wants to infiltrate you, if he wants to, to, to give you something that's, that's, that's wrong for you, that the word of God says you should be keeping out, are your walls so weak? Is your gate left open so that everything that's good and bad is allowed to come into your life? and influence the way you think, the way you live, and ultimately those people around you. This is the basis of this sermon today. What is the state of our walls? As we enter into 2013, what's the state of our walls? Last time, two weeks ago, was the first part of the sermon. And it covered the first, from first, uh, I think it was verse 1 to about verse 14. And what it covered basically was knowing the enemy's strategies, how he tries to stop you building the walls that God wants you to build. 
You see, if you have no walls, you have no defence. And God wants us to build strong and sturdy walls to defend not just ourselves, but our families, our friends. When you seek to live a life of faith and you are building the defences of your life upon the foundation of the word of God, then the enemy will seek to discourage you from doing that. You see, you build strong enough walls, he can't get in. He can't infiltrate. So he has, he's, he has one option, and that's to discourage you from that work, to stop you from building. Because if he can stop you from building, then your life is vulnerable to him. And not only your life, but the people around you. You become a vulnerability for the people around you as well. He will seek to discourage you from building. And we looked at a number of uh, strategies that he used based on this particular passage. And we looked at it and we said, and if you want to write these down, you're more than welcome to. The first thing that people will do or the devil will do to try to discourage you from building walls based on the word of God is that people will become angry at you for no apparent reason. Simply because you say you believe the word of God. Many of us have been in a situation where you've, been, you've had a conversation with, some, with someone or you're, having, you're talking to someone about the Bible and you've said to them, I believe this to be true. And all of a sudden they become angry at you. Many people who turn their lives over to God, who become Christians and go back to their families who may have been uh, upright and religious or whatever it is, they go back to their families and they say, Mom, Dad, I've become a Christian, I've given my heart to God. Have found themselves in a situation where their parents have become angry at them. Why? Well, the devil has a great time of trying to discourage people who want to give their heart to God. And when anger doesn't work, mockery and sarcasm then kick in. Mockery and sarcasm are becoming more and more commonplace against Christianity. Christians are, are portrayed in, in most liberal media as fools for believing what the Bible teaches. Absolute fools. And you can't defend what you, what you say these days. We can't have an opinion almost and say, well, God teaches this or God says this because they say, well, you're a fool for believing that. So they begin to mock you, to use sarcasm. And when that doesn't work, people begin to threaten and intimidate. Threats and intimidation are fairly commonplace in Islamic countries against Christians who are in the minority. I'm not saying it doesn't happen the other way around as well, but Christians are never meant to intimidate or to threaten anyone. But we see, for example, in Egypt, the Coptic church over there under complete attack. Churches are being burned on a regular basis. People are being killed on a regular basis um, and attacked. And we see that happening across a number of North African and Middle Eastern states. Ethiopian churches are regularly burned to the ground. Indonesian Islamists often attack and burn down Christian churches. You don't hear much of that happening these days because the media doesn't want to talk about it. But it's very, very common. Try living a Christian life, an open Christian life in Iran. 
you'll find it pretty difficult without trying to keep it quiet. Intimidation and threats are common. The next thing the enemy will do is try to discourage you by physically exhausting you. And the Bible teaches us that the flesh, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And your flesh will remind you of that. You see, the problem that we have as Christians is that we still have two natures. God gave us a new nature when we were born again, which is his divine nature, but we still have the old hanging around. And the old will continually want to drag us back to the lifestyle and the thinking that we had before. So we contend with that, and that's the devil's opportunity to, to work on us. Because when you make a decision to pray that night before you go to bed, tell me how tired you feel before you do it. Yet, we can be doing other things which are totally irrelevant and important, or not important, and we feel perfectly fine. Yet, when it comes time to get on our knees and actually have a conversation with God, all of a sudden we feel tired. Or when it, when it comes time to getting up in the morning and have a devotion time or prayer time. Or when it comes to getting to church on a Sunday morning. The enemy does a wonderful job of using our flesh, that part which is weak in us, against us. And we need to be aware of those things. We, are, we need to be aware that we shouldn't be fooled by our own flesh. When it comes to dividing up our time, to working out our, our schedule in our lives and what we do and how we do it, the flesh will make sure that we are continually consumed with earthly things, with worldly things, and so consumed and so, and so caught up with chasing after things of the world that we don't have time for the things of God. And if we do make time for the things of God, that you're thoroughly exhausted when you get there. We need to be aware of the enemy's plans. The enemy, if that doesn't work, the enemy will then use negativism against you. You say, negativism? Yes, negativism. Where you become negative about everything. He'll get you to focus on what's wrong with things rather than what's right. And if you spend long enough focusing on what's wrong in life, guess what your life is going to be? Negative. And guess what you're going to influence and who you're going to influence around you in what sort of way? Negatively. You will inevitably, if you spend long enough focusing on the negative without coming up with a solution or being part of the answer to that thing, you will inevitably become a negative influence on other people around you because you will fail to see what's good. If you find something negative, as a piece of advice, if you find some, something negative in your life, in your family, in your friends, in your church, that can reveal something about your nature more than it reveals about the situation. Because how you deal with that, what you do with it, will tell you very much about what, what you're like and what your heart is like. If you're consumed about just the negativity, just about what's wrong, without being the solution to that, without being a counteractant to that, to that problem. And there may be a problem there. But if all you do is go around that negative problem and saying, woe is me, woe is us, woe is everything else, things are so bad around here, then all you're doing is amplifying a problem rather than being the solution. 
We'll talk a bit, that, a bit more about that sort of thing in coming weeks. And finally, the enemy will use a combination of these things to cause you to fear. And fear is, uh, according to the dictionary definition, an unpleasant emotion caused by the belief that someone or something is dangerous, likely to cause pain or a threat. One of our problems is that we often make choices based on the fear that we feel, the emotion that we have. Either we don't make decisions because we're fearful of the consequences of those decisions, so we are left almost paralysed, or we make decisions overreacting to something because we are fearful of it and we don't understand it properly. When a person makes choices based on fear, they rarely ever make good choices. Normally, fear causes people to overreact, to run, to neglect the important things in life. And you and the people around you will inevitably come out worse for wear if you make choices based on fear. Fear is what the world, how the world operates. It shouldn't be the way we operate. When we base our decisions and when we make the choices in life, we should make them with the knowledge of Jesus Christ, with the understanding that God has given us in his word. You see, if, if Jesus had made decisions based on fear, he would have run the other way when it came time to bearing his cross and going and taking it up that hill at Calvary. And you and I wouldn't be here today. Worshipping God because of the wonderful sacrifice that was made for us and the fact that he rose again on the third day. But Jesus went to a garden the night before and sweat drops of blood. And he worked through it. He didn't base his decision on fear. Look at all the prophets in the Old Testament and every disciple in the New Testament, if they had based their their decisions on the fear that they had of the, of the Jews attacking them and the Romans wanting to crucify them and to, and to throw them to the lions, they wouldn't have all given their lives for what they believed in. And we, once again, we wouldn't have been here today. The question for us is, are we basing our decisions on fear? Because this is the way the world works. Satan often uses, and this is, this is another thing that Satan does very, very well, he gets people to band together because they fear something. If you fear something, and I can get someone else who fears the same thing as me, what are we going to do? We're going to get together. And we're going to conspire against that fear. Look at, look at verse 7 in, in Nehemiah chapter 4. It says, But it came to pass that when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabians and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were made up, in other words, they were being builded, and that the breaches began to be stopped. In other words, they're, they're filling up the holes that, that had been broken down. They were very wroth. That word wroth is angry. They had gotten together. You see, Jerusalem was a threat to them now. Threat to their little empire that was going on. So naturally, what they did is they got together. And it says in verse 8, And they conspired all of them together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to hinder it. To fight against what? A small group of people that were trying to just rebuild their town. Rarely, 
will the unsaved or the ungodly attack you when you're one-on-one? That will, that will almost never happen. For those of you who have tried to share the gospel with a group of people, though, at the same time who are unsaved, you will notice at times certain people in the group try to rally those around them to attack you, to mock you. That's because of fear. They fear that what you are about to tell them is going to change their lives in a way that they're not going to like. Or you're going to tell them something that's going to mean that they now become responsible for something that they didn't know before, that they don't want to be responsible for. It becomes a threat to them. And their sin nature automatically overreacts and says, no way, get this, get this message away from you and attack it as much as you possibly can. Common hatred has a wonderful power of uniting even former enemies. You see, when Jesus walked the earth, one man walking around, talking to people about the kingdom of God, telling people to love their enemies, to pray for those who hate you, to do good for the, to those who despitefully use you and want to kill you. Okay, He's teaching that sort of stuff. He's teaching about um, uh, love and grace and mercy and peace. Um, you'd think that that sort of message was pretty good. Yet, he had lawyers, scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, all grouped together against him. Now, did these groups like each other? No. They hated each other. The scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they hated each other. It was natural for them to hate each other. They were actually like the Liberal Party, the Labour Party, the Greens, and all these different groups and, and political parties banded together to attack an individual who was teaching the grace of God and the love of God and that we were responsible to God. That's his message. Yet... They came together against him because of a common hatred they had for him. And this is what has happened throughout all generations. When God's message has been proclaimed, people band together because they fear it. They fear the way it will change them. And their nature will automatically overreact because of fear. When next it seems that things are going wrong for you in a number of different ways and people seem to be ganging up on you, remember that this game has been played before over and over and over again throughout history. You are not alone. And it's a common thing among the fearful. I say fearful because ultimately the devil uses people's fears against them to stop them from making a decision. You see, there are many people who have spoken to you about the Lord Jesus Christ and the necessity for them to have a relationship with him and to accept the sacrifice that was, that was made for them because the Bible says that he is the only way to get to God. The only way. And yet, because of fear, because of fear of the people around them, their families, their friends, and the fear of offending others, the fear of being ostracised from their community, the fear of, of being laughed at or scorned or whatever else it may be, people don't make the decision. They shelve it. 
Satan is a master of using our sin natures against us. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 21, verse 7 for a moment. Revelation, last book in the Bible, chapter 21, verse 7. Look what it says here. Look what the Lord himself says. He says, He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful, the unbelieving, and the abominable, and murderers, and whoremongers, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Notice how it says there, the fearful. And you think to yourself, God's putting fear together with unbelief, murderers, whoremongers, sorcerers? Is that right? Does that match? Yes, it does. It matches. Because a fearful person is a faithless person. A person who will never step out. A person who knows the truth but will never, never take it and say, I'm going to risk something here. I'm going to try it. A fearful person will not take the step of faith because they have none to take. Having faith causes a person to do things that a fearful person cannot. Most of the world is fearful. They're afraid. And they won't turn and be saved because in the end they fear man more than they fear God. They fear the crowd. They fear their families. They fear their friends. They fear their position in society more than God himself. And Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 10, Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. But rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. It's almost, it's almost like a person is afraid of a bee sting more than they're afraid of a bullet. Yet people are like that. People rather fear men who in the end of the day don't really care about them and in the end of the day can't do anything for them rather than fearing God who loves them, who can judge them and will judge them and he's the only one who can actually save them. And this was Nehemiah's message to his people. As the enemy was trying to work its way to stop them from building this wall, he says, you don't need to fear them. You don't need to fear these people because God is on our side. We're doing this for God. And if we're doing this for the Lord, God will protect us. And God will carry the work through. Listen to this passage in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love, and of sound mind. Be not therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. The Bible says don't be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. No need to be ashamed or, or afraid. Because when you are a child of God, there is nothing to fear if you have God with you. 
So we've looked at what the devil tries to do to stop us from building the walls. Okay? That's been the first part of it. The second part of these strategies to defend your wall. Okay, so we know what he tries to do, how he tries to infiltrate. What are, what are we supposed to do, though? Well, let's have a look at some of, these, some of these passages. The first strategy in trying to defend your wall, look at verse 9. How does Nehemiah react in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 9? He says, Nevertheless, we made our prayer unto our God. The first thing Nehemiah does is pray. That's the first strategy to defending your wall. If you have a wall to defend, the first thing you need to do is pray. Despite the threats and the impending attack, the first thing Nehemiah did was to pray. And prayer was a habit for this guy because we see it mentioned a number of times in that, in that small book. When he heard, first of all, that the, the walls weren't being built, the first thing he did was pray to God and say, God, what do you want me to do here? And he prayed so sincerely that the king allowed him to go back. And build that wall. All of life, especially the battles we face in the realm of faith, should be bathed with prayer. If we aren't praying people, we aren't strong people. We can't be defending without prayer. We should pray because the Bible says that we are in a fierce battle. This is not just a walk in the park. When you became a Christian, when you said, I'm going to claim the name of Christ for myself... And call myself by his name. You didn't just accept all the benefits. What you also accepted were the responsibilities. You entered into a war. And that war never stops. Because the devil never stops. And God has called us to fight. Sometimes the fighting is hard. Sometimes the battle is fierce. And sometimes you feel left alone. But the Bible says that you are called to fight. You are called to be a good soldier of Christ. The devil is constantly against us. And we've seen some of the strategy he uses against us. But he loves the divide and conquer business. He loves to separate us and get us by ourselves. That's why we meet every Sunday. Because if we're by ourselves, he can pick us off one by one. The Bible says we are to encourage one another to fight this good fight of faith. We are told in the Bible that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against powers of this dark world, against spiritual forces of evil that have been, the Bible says, enthroned. And the world is enthroned the, 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 the ruler of this world in ways they can't see. And we are in a battle and we need the help of God. The fact that we wrestle with an invisible enemy is our biggest problem. We don't, if I could see the devil, I'd punch him in the nose. But I can't see him. I, I don't know where he is. I don't know how he operates. And so what I need is this. Because this tells me what to do. This gives me my instruction on a day-to-day basis on how to live my life so I don't end up stepping on a landmine. We are in a battle. And we've been called to defend the lines. 
The enemy, is, the enemy has marshaled his forces and armies, and if we neglect prayer, we're going into a battle unarmed without direction from the commander. What sort of a battle would you be in? What sort of, what sort of success would you have if, if all the soldiers that you're part of all decided to do their own thing when it came to a battle? Would you stand any chance of defeating the enemy? No. The enemy we, we face is highly organised, powerful, invisible. We need to be organised ourselves. The problem is that most Christians, they want to do it their own way. They want to fight their own little battles and go off into, into a different direction. People, if we're fighting different battles in different directions, you can guarantee that we won't win. You will guarantee that there will be bodies strewn all over the battlefield if we don't fight together. And prayer is the, is the starting point of every battle. If you feel your flesh, even now, you may be thinking, oh, prayer is not that important. I can get by without prayer. If you feel that your flesh is telling you that right now, then remember Jesus Christ himself. Remember him, the Son of God, the almighty Son of God who came to this earth to save sinners like us with this wretched nature that we have. He came to save us. Guess what he did? He prayed. He prayed morning. He prayed whenever was required to speak to the Father, whenever he, he was facing a spiritual battle. He prayed. He took time to pray by himself. We see many instances in the Bible where Jesus goes away and prays. Now, if the Son of God has to pray, then what about us who, who are infected with a sin nature? We need to pray as well. If Jesus didn't feel he could face the battle in his own strength, then neither should we. Philippians chapter 4 verse 6 says, Be careful for nothing, which means don't be concerned about little things, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. In other words, don't worry about things. Pray for everything. There's a... Um, in Africa... When Christianity started to be spread in Africa, there were many, many conversions that were taking place, especially in the early years when the Christian missionaries were going there. And there was something that they did which was really interesting. Everyone, would, after they met, would go out into a certain spot and begin to pray. And they'd walk from the place to their same spot all the time. And that happened so often that they would go away and pray and fall on their face before God in the same place that they actually wore out a path, each of them, wore out a path on the grass to where they went. Pretty soon, you could see everyone's path where they went. You knew where, where James and Harry and John all went to pray to God on a regular basis because they, they walked that path so often. And, and, it was, and they would say that when they, when they came together, if they saw grass beginning to grow on one of the paths, they would say, brother, grass grows on your path. Because he wasn't praying enough and they were concerned for them. Let me ask you this morning, how much grass is on your path? How much grass is on that path where you should be praying? Is it, is it that high or is it well worn? 
Is the communication you have with Jesus Christ a regular thing? Something you love to do and something that is, is nourishing you and giving you direction for this war? If your grass is too high, don't take a lawnmower out. Wear it down with your feet. Wear it down on your knees. The next thing Nehemiah does, look at verse 13. He says, Therefore said I, in the lower places behind the wall, and in the higher places I even set the people after their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. Nehemiah set a watch for his people. He told his people to keep watch and stay alert. And it's amazing in the Bible how often being alert or being watchful is linked with prayer. There's a couple of scripture verses, you don't have to turn there, but 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7 says, But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2 says, Continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. Prayer and being watchful about what's happening around you are often linked together in the Bible. And Nehemiah, the Bible says, set people to stand and keep watch. And it's interesting to note, you'll notice there it says, the lower places, he said they were to stand behind the wall. The higher places, what does it say? What does it say he told them to do? They were to be on the wall. Now why is that? Why weren't the guys in the lower parts of the wall on the wall as well? Well, the answer is very easy when you think about it. The guys who were, sitting on, who were standing on a high wall were actually quite safe up there, first of all. They weren't vulnerable to attack. When people are shooting arrows and throwing spears at you, if you're high, it's a lot harder to get a target up there. But second of all, if you're standing on a wall that's high, you get to see what's happening a long way away. The guys who were standing or have a, who are trying to watch a small part or short part of the wall, they have to stand behind the wall. Because it's pointless for them to stand on top of the wall. They're not going to see much further anyway. But on top of that, they're more vulnerable to attack. If, if the enemy comes, the first place he will try to attack is where? The high part or the low part? The low part. So the guys who are standing, trying to defend a low wall, have to stand behind the wall and use the wall as some sort of defence. Relying on the guys who are up above to tell them what's going on. This is the same thing when it comes to Christianity. You know something? There are some of us with very high walls. God has called us to stand and be the watchman for our people. To be a watch, not just for ourselves, to be the watch for the people around us. To see what's, to look far and say, this is what's going on. Guys, watch out. Something's happening over here. Men, you've been called to be the, the watchmen in your families. You've been called to be the protectors. If you're not watching out for your families, who is? Someone else? And in the church, the Bible says that we are to be watching for each other. If, you're, if you've built up your wall through faith and love and the reading of God's word and building up a, a mature relationship with Jesus Christ, so you're firm in your foundation then God has called you to use that foundation to help those ones who are weak around you, the ones whose walls are short. Either they're new Christians or Christians that are struggling. 
Inevitably, we should all be building our walls, but there are some of us who God has called to be watching out for the others. And you know, if you have a small wall now, don't stay small. Build. Build. Read God's word. Pray. Fight the good fight of faith. Rely on the counsel of God's word and godly men around you, the ones you can see further away. Rely on counsel from them. And you will have a better opportunity of building your wall and be high as well. To watch means that we are, we are keeping a close eye on what's happening in our lives, the state of our families, our friends, our church, for the sole purpose of helping to defend them from the attacks of the enemy. And once again, your job is not just to defend yourself, it's to defend the whole city. Because if there's a breach somewhere else, it will affect you. The next thing the Bible says in verse 16, it says, And it came to pass that from that time forth, that half of my servants wrought in the work, the other half of them held both the spears and shields and the bows and the habijons and the rulers that were behind all the house of Judah. They which built it on the wall, they that bear burdens and those that laid it. Every one with his own hands wrought in the work and with the other hand held the weapon. For the builders, every one had his sword girded by his side and so builded and he that sounded the trumpet was by me. Uh, these people were prepared as much for war as they were, as they were for work. Work and war went hand in hand. They were prepared for both and they were ready for both. While they were digging, they had a sword on their side ready for battle at the same time because the enemy could have come upon them at any time. This is the, the calling of a Christian as well. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Ephesians 6.10 says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armour of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. With all, taking up the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and supplication, praying at all seasons in the Spirit, and watching thereunto in all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Do we have our armour on? If you don't have your armour on, if you don't have your sword in hand, you are a target for the enemy. Because the enemy will try and attack the ones who don't have the armour first, who aren't ready for battle first. In fact, the problem with Christianity is not just they don't have armour, they're not working at the same time. There are, there are too many Christians in, in churches around the, around the whole world 
that are spending their time, instead of building their walls, sleeping against it. They're neither working nor are ready for battle. So they become a weak part of the wall. The enemy infiltrates and doesn't just destroy them, destroys everyone else around them as well. We are involved in a war, not against people or society, no, nothing physical here. The Bible says that we're against the same deception that was perpetrated against our first parents. The same lies, deception, the same hatred that has been leveled against us from the beginning. The war we engage in is a war of faith. A war to be holy, to be pure, to be loving, to obey the Lord in all things and to resist the trials and temptations that are sure to come our way. God's people must be ready both for work and for war. My question this morning is, are you working and are you ready? Look at verse 19 and 20. Nehemiah says, And I said unto the nobles and to the rulers and to the rest of the people, The work is great and large, and we are separated upon the wall one from another. In what place, therefore, ye hear the sound of the trumpet, resort ye thither unto us, our God shall fight for us. Now you look at that passage and some of you might be struggling with what he's actually saying. But basically it was this. If they're working on a wall that goes around a city, okay, Nehemiah saying, we're pretty far from each other over here, aren't we? If the enemy decides to attack, Nehemiah realised that you know, you've got half your people on the other side of the wall, if there was an attack from this side over here, what were they going to do? If they weren't aware of what was happening, they'd be continuing to, to do what they were normally doing, totally oblivious to the war that was, that was on another front. So he says this. He says, when you hear the, the trumpet being sounded, let's gather together at a rendezvous point. Come together to me. He's got the guy with the trumpet with him. If... At any stage, they hear that something's going on, they sound a trumpet, and they all mass together and they get ready for battle. He needed to instruct them. He needed to tell them about needing to fight together and needing to gather during times of war. This is why we have church. This is why church is so vital. Because we need to get together, to listen to the plan of attack and what's happening, to be fed, and then so we can go out again into the world and fight those battles. There are times we need to get together, and church is one of those times. And church is a place where you learn to fight together. It's so we are actually fighting in a coordinated and disciplined way. If none of us ever met for church... We'd all be off doing our own things, trying to fight our own battles and not being supported by anyone else. You see, in any army, there are those who are stationed at different positions based on their abilities. There are those who are in the front lines, there are those in the back, there are those who are given command, there are those who are on the side, there are those who, who are holding guns, there are those who are, who are operating cannons. There are... Everyone has their own part to play. And if they weren't coordinated, then the battlefield once again becomes a difficult place. Nehemiah knew that. And he said, when something's going on, 
I'm going to sound this trumpet. I'm going to sound an alert and we ought to meet together. And the final thing is, look at verse 21 to 23. So we laboured in the work and half of them held the spears from the rising of the morning till the stars appeared. Likewise, at the same time, said I unto the people, let every one with his servant lodge within Jerusalem, that in the night they may be a guard to us and labour on the day. So neither I nor my brethren nor my servants nor the men of the guard which followed me, none of us put off our clothes, saving that every one put them off for washing. They laboured morning and night. They laboured night and day. While, while one, some were sleeping, the other ones were guarding. While they were sleeping, they were guarding. There was a continual watch. There was a continual work going on over here. And it says here they only changed their clothes for the sake of washing them. So there, there wasn't this time they had to look at themselves in the mirror and make themselves, you know, like we all do in the morning, we make ourselves look. There was none of that going on. They were too busy working. Consistency. The Bible says we ought to be consistent. We aren't to live lives that are like, you know, the, um, what do they call those things? That the, a roller coaster, yes. Too many Christians live their lives like roller coasters. Going on these fantastic highs and then all of a sudden dropping down to incredible lows. The Bible wants us to be, the Lord wants to be consistent with our lives. To be solid, dependable, disciplined. This is the calling of a Christian. You know, it's something you learn as you get older in life. And this is a great thing for young people to learn. Is that the greatest change you can affect over the course of your life the best things you will accomplish in your life are those things you do a bit at a time. A bit at a time over a long period of time. They will be the greatest benefit to yourself and to other people. Not the things that are done all of, a, all of an instant. Those things are okay in, in themselves, but the, the most productive, the most beneficial things you will do in your life are those things and, and, and disciplines you learn which act over a, a long period of time. It's a bit like the tortoise and the hare. Yeah? The tortoise decided to take that slow road but take it consistently. The hare decided to have a bit of a sprint and the hare lost in the end. People who try to sprint at the end often fail. Those who work consistently and slowly and do the things they're meant to be doing on a daily basis are the people who ultimately live stable lives and who achieve the greatest in the end. That's true of disciplining your life when it comes to work. That's true of your relationships that you have with your families. That's true of your Christian walk. When you do the small things and you're consistent with those things, you'll find the greatest benefit, not just to you but to everyone else around you. Remember that as a rule in your life and it will take you very far because the Bible teaches us that a man planted... Uh, by streams of living water. It's like a tree that's planted. Trees take a long time to grow. They don't grow overnight, but they grow slowly. And they, they need to draw in sustenance over a long period of time. You know, most of, the, most of the, um, the illnesses that kill us these days kill us over a, over a long period of time. Whether it's diabetes or heart attacks or the, things of that nature... They're things that are slowly chipping away at your health over a long period of time. People don't just have a heart attack like that. People have a heart attack because over many, many years, 
The arteries in that lead to the, to the heart are getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Until eventually, the heart can't take it anymore and it falls over. The same thing with diabetes. Diabetes doesn't kill you overnight. Diabetes kills you slowly. The same thing with high blood pressure. High blood pressure, will, high blood pressure doesn't kill you overnight. It doesn't give you a stroke overnight. But high blood pressure will kill you slowly. It will eventually break a blood vessel somewhere. This is the same with most things in life. Either something will kill you slowly or you can use the same principle and build slowly and consistently. That's the thing we need to learn. Be consistent with your life in prayer, in faith, in obedience, with your Bible reading, with your devotions, with your love, your mercy, your patience. Build on those things. Step by step, methodically doing it in a disciplined way and you will build the wall in your life. So how is the wall in your life? How is it today? As you enter into 2013, let's take good stock. Let's take a good uh, look at our wall and let's even write down the plan that we're going to put together to help build that wall. And with the help of those people around us, with the help of the Spirit of God, with the help of God's Word, you know something? Believe you can build that wall. Because you can. You can build a strong and high wall and you can make such a big difference, not just to your life, but to the people around you. And if your, lo- if your wall is in ruin this morning, if you're defenceless, remember, the first step is sometimes the hardest, but it's something you need to make a decision about. Choose to start working. Choose to put that armour on. Make that choice and begin building that wall. Remember the five steps. Pray. Stay alert. Be prepared both for war and for work. Take time to get together to rendezvous and be consistent in your life. Nehemiah says, And I looked, in verse 14, I looked and rose up and said unto the nobles and to the rulers and to the rest of the people, Be not ye afraid of them. Remember the Lord, which is great and terrible. And look at the way he finishes. And fight for your brethren, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your houses. Fight for them. Most of the time we, we're so focused on our own lives that we forget those people around us. The Christians who lead the most stable lives are the ones who aren't so focused on themselves is the ones who are so busy doing the work, serving everyone else, is the ones who are not so consumed about their own problems, but the ones who are actually helping other people with their problems. The ones who are the most stable in life and the ones who achieve the most are doing it consistently. They're fighting the good fight and they're working diligently day by day. I gave a story at the beginning of the sermon about the Great Wall of China. And it was, a, it was a gatekeeper that let, let the opposing forces through. Everyone, every one of us who has a wall has a gate. The problem that we have is that we have two natures. We have an old flesh and we have the new nature. The new nature is the one who only lets in the good stuff, but the old nature wants to let in the bad stuff as well. That's a struggle that we have. We need to keep an eye on what's going on in our lives. 
And if you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, if you haven't given your life to him yet, then you only have the old nature. You don't have the new yet. So you're allowing, your gate is completely open. You don't know the truth from the, from the, from the false. The Bible calls us to accept Jesus Christ as our saviour. There is no other way to heaven. There is no other way to meet God other than the provision that he made, which was to send his only son to this world, who fought that battle, who consistently worked, who consistently fought, and in the end, consistently, he gave his life for me, a sinner, by allowing himself to be crucified so that I might have life. That's your choice today. If you haven't made it, don't wait. There is a war on. The question is, are you, are you asleep in the dark, ready to be taken by the enemy? Or are you, fighting, are you awake and alert in the light? Allow God to open up your eyes to the truth. God bless you.